Welcome to The Food Show. I'm Emily Becker. Today we've got interviews about three of my favorite foods, olives, bread, and cheese. Before we get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that KBU is in the middle of our spring membership drive. KBU is a community-supported and community-focused radio station, and 80% of our funding comes from our members. You can show your support and become a member today at kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. First up on today's show, we'll hear from Javier Fernandez Salvador, Assistant Professor at Oregon State University and Director of the Olea Project. The Olea Project is researching and evaluating best practices for growing olives in Oregon. Javier and I will chat about these beautiful fruits, climate change, and the challenges of growing olives in the region. In the second half of the show, I'll speak with Matt Kedzi and Zena Wayless, bread bakers and owners of Starter Bread, a community-supported bread business. Then we're joined by the tipsy monger, Nikki Panos, to learn about cheese and some local cheese and cider pairings. If grains, cheese, or local economies are your thing, make sure to stay tuned. I'm joined today by Javier Fernandez-Salvador from OSU, and we're going to be talking about olives. Um, Welcome, Javier. Hello, Emily. Thank you for having me over. This is a really uh, exciting opportunity to talk about the project that we have going on at OSU. Uh, My name is Javier Fernandez-Salvador. I am uh, an assistant professor at OSU with the Small Farms Program and uh, in Marion and Paul County. I'm also the lead for the mid Willamette Valley region, which includes Marion, Polk, and Yamhill counties. I am the director for the OLEA project, as well as the special berry initiative from the legislature. I'm very excited to learn more about the OLEA project, which is focusing on growing olives in Oregon, because olives are magical and delicious, and I love olive oil. And I would love to have Oregon-grown olives and Oregon-grown olive oil. Javier, tell us what the OLEA project is. Yes, the OLEA project uh, is an initiative that was born about four years ago uh, when a couple of colleagues and I got together with some growers that uh, started really wanting to for OSU to provide some replicated trials and some science, uh, scientific background to the olive production here in Oregon. So anecdotally uh, in the state, there has been um, some growers that have produced olives for some for 10, some for a little longer than that, some for close to 20 years. Uh, Olive production in the state started right around there at a very, very, very small scale. And um, there are some growers that, wanted us to um, do the replicated trial so that we can provide some best practices for them to start uh, start orchards, new orchards. And olives, as you mentioned, are one of the most revered crops around the world. They have, with, they have all these magical uh, capabilities to it. So uh, the project has gotten a lot of traction. 
That's exciting. So um, before we dive into the project, I want to know why you love olives and why you you wanted to work with olives. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think it comes from my, uh, first of all, my background is in berry and tree physiology. Um, I am currently uh, completing my PhD at OSU. Uh, and I've worked with uh, berries, mostly blueberries, and in the past with strawberries and blackberries and raspberries. But I've also worked with uh, sweet cherry and other fruit trees. I'm originally from Ecuador, and over there I work with avocado and, and other crops. And getting back to tree fruit was something that I really wanted to do. So again, being from another country, uh, my interest in doing something that is not that common has always been there. So I uh, really wanted to try something new. And when I was approached by a couple of growers about olives, I thought it would be a natural fit. You are working with some already established growers of olives. And then the way I understand the project is you're also hoping to increase the number of people who are growing olives in Oregon and to make it a more viable and um, sustainable crop. You mentioned doing some trials. Can you talk a little bit about what those trials are? Let me just jump on that really quick because this is important to clarify. Our The objective of our project is mainly to find out what would be the best practices to establish the crop. But Olives, and I, we can talk about this a little bit, but olives are not meant to be grown in our climate. We want to try to support the growers that dare to do it, <laughs> but we don't, we're not necessarily going for increasing the amount of acreage because it can be really challenging. We can talk about all of that, but I think it's, it's important for people to know that growing olives in Oregon comes with a big, big, big grain of salt. Uh, and and uh, when you're doing it, you have a lot of considerations to have and a lot of what you will be doing um, depends strictly on luck. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the project. So olives, they're native to the Middle East. They're a, a crop that requires um, dry, uh, long growing seasons. So hence the Mediterranean climate, it's where it's been located. Uh, the production is mostly located. And of course, uh, spread across Europe, the southern parts of Europe, Italy, Spain, northern parts of Africa, and then the Middle East. Um, Turkey, um, Israel, of course, you have really old orchards there in uh, Lebanon, Syria, all the way to Persia and the Middle East, right, to, to Iran. Um, and the, in that region, the conditions are very dry, hot summers, where sometimes you don't have irrigation available necessarily, and shorter, milder winters to what you would see at more north and more south latitudes, right? So if you look it in a map, it's that real, uh, that um, strip of latitude that is perfect for olive production. That also matches in the new world, what we call new world area production areas in California, of course, parts of Mexico, and then in the Southern hemisphere, uh, Australia, um, Chile, Argentina, and uh, well, maybe some parts also up north up to Peru, um, and then parts of, South, parts of South Africa, right? 
So that those would be your Mediterranean regions. Now, when you're considering that for um, in, in relation to Oregon, we are a little bit up higher in latitude, which means that we deal with colder winters on a consistent basis. Or that that's what we thought until we had climate change, right? At this point, we really don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. So what happens here in Oregon? A lot of growers uh, were interested in the crop. Uh, mostly some of the growers actually that started uh, vineyards when um, grapes were not necessarily the number one thing to grow in Oregon. They were really a pioneering industry for that uh, before Pinot became a uh, staple for Oregon. Um, they also uh, later on said, well, what we can, can we try next? And there I'm going to mention uh, one of my collaborators, Paul Durant and the Durant family, which have an, an, uh, uh, a vineyard, but they also have an olive orchard and one of the largest ones in the state, actually. And um, so they tried this pioneering crop, copying the uh, systems that had been in production in California and gathering some local information as well. And the main problem there was that unlike with grapes that can withstand very cold temperatures, which is, which is not a challenge for them, and they, they, grapes have other challenges here in the States, um, olives have this period, especially when you just planted and they're starting to grow, where if they get hit by a really cold temperature, they just die. Or they get killed back all the way to, to the trunk. So they have to start growing all over again, right? So the idea of our project was to uh, first uh, meet and and get uh, do a needs assessment of what the growers actually need across the state. Then second, uh, look at practices and look at their priorities of what we could do for um, better start, uh, better help them start a new industry. Okay, and continue to grow an industry because it's really not new. It's been here for more than ten years. I love that connection between the wine growers and the olive growers because, you know, we, we think about some of the oldest, most established vineyards in Oregon and how incredible their wines are now <laughs> and how celebrated to think of them as pioneering new cultivation techniques in Oregon and to think of olive growers who have started in the last 10 years or so, right? 10 or 15 years, being those same pioneering kind of spirits ready to um, try out something new. And like with grapes, we've seen a lot of people jump on board and say, oh yeah, let's grow grapes. And so my personal hope is that other people will <laughs> start growing olives in Oregon as well. Can you talk a little bit about olive varieties and just kind of a little bit about the nature of olive trees, how long they take to mature, if olives would follow a similar path that, you know, in 20 years, maybe we will have more olives being grown in Oregon. People won't listen to your advice and will say, I'm up to the challenge and I will start growing olives. Yeah, definitely. Um olives if you produce them first of all i have to be completely realistic here um grapes in oregon have become a very uh important and sizable and i don't want to be too negative about it but that will never happen with olives based on what i know on my point of view right now now it uh, has the potential to become an incredible niche market that um can produce a great quality product, but more of a boutique product, if you know what I mean. Um, 
the reason for that, it's not only the uh, climatic challenges that we have, but the industries in other states are moving towards uh, mechanization for reducing labor costs. And um, in Oregon, if on top of um, all of the climatic challenges, and then there's also pollination challenges that I have to talk about, uh, and yield challenges, um, you add the added expense of hand picking and hand labor, the industry would be basically <laughs> people that are either very small or um, have a really big wad of money in their pockets to be able to do it as a losing kind of business. And, uh, and the reason for that is, again, uh, the challenges. So olives are evergreens. Uh, they're not deciduous trees like other fruit trees um, that as soon as it gets cold, they lose their leaves, right? Or other blueberries and other crops as well that drop their leaves in the winter. They go into a dormancy period and um, they, met, they also get, uh, meet their chilling period to be able for the flower bud initiation to happen. And then <clears throat> they start production the following year. In olives, they, they never lose their leaves. They do need to get a very short period of uh, around five to 600 hours of uh, cold temperatures, uh, which in Oregon we meet in November. In California, it takes a while longer to meet that, for, as an example, just as a comparison, right? And then um, they continue to grow in flushes. So what I what we usually refer to as flushes is it grows a part of uh, of a vegetative shoot, and then it will grow another, and then it will grow laterals, and then those will grow more shoots and more and more um, um, uh, flushes of growth as they continue to grow, right? So um, what happens here in Oregon when we are and, and olives also uh, they they don't really go into what we called strictly a dormancy period, right? Because again, they don't lose their leaves as you would do with other trees. So um, they, they, they just slow down for the winter, let's put it like that. So what happens with, with Oregon? When you, you get your chill period met, the plant would actually be ready to produce if it had heat and temperature in December, if that was warm, right? But that's not the case, of course. And then uh, it gets colder and colder and colder. This is where I was talking about the big grain of salt. In the last three years, four years, four winters have not been cold in Oregon at all. And but I, what I mean by cold is what we saw five, six, five or six years ago, I can't remember actually the year, um, where we had three days of temperatures around 15 and 18, right? The coldest we got in our station last year was around 25 degrees, I believe, for a few hours, for a couple of nights. That is really not considered cold for Oregon. So the, the trees sustained very, very little of a little bit of a leaf yellowing, and that's it. Whereas if you have a couple of 15, year, uh, 15 uh, degree days, uh, 15 uh, Fahrenheit temperatures for two days, we would have seen a lot of damage. So growers that planted four years ago, you know, 
they probably have a very nice and beautiful Stavis orchard like we do at North Willamette. <laughs> I guess I have I have a couple questions. One is that it seems like olives are kind of used to growing in not super um, healthy, vibrant soils, right? They can grow in areas that have a little bit poor soil quality compared to a lot of other things that we grow in Western Oregon, is my understanding. Um, so how does that coupled with climate change? It's, it's going to change. It may make it more hospitable to growing olives. So I'm just, I'm curious about that kind of combination of maybe this is a crop that people could grow in places that not other things grow that well and our climate is changing potentially to make it more viable to grow olives. Have you seen that? Is that something you guys are looking into? Uh, not in our current project, but um, olives are a very noble tree. Yes, as a matter of fact, um, they actually, when I started to do the research, I figured out that they grow in a much wider uh, range of pH than what I thought. They can take a little bit of acid, so a little bit of an acid soil, but they can also grow in very calcareous, high pH soils as they do in the Mediterranean. Once they're big and established, they don't require a lot of water, right? Uh, which makes it very attractive for a lot of growers, especially in California, you know, as the water restrictions and, and droughts come, come in, right? Important thing that of what you mentioned. It's not necessarily that they like marginal soils that are not great. It just They just like different soils. So they don't have a very high nitrogen requirement for their production. They don't require, uh, the, usually what they, other minerals that they can get from the soil are pretty much what they need. So that's why they continue to grow in and produce decently in uh, multiple uh, areas in the Mediterranean where they're kind of abandoned. Uh, that's the general thought. Now, when you're talking about high yield, high production, you are talking about a completely different thing. That's high technification and irrigation, um, a lot of management to get those really, really high yields. So um, here in Oregon, um, our soils are great, <laughs> are actually very vigorous. I think um, the fertility that we have to do here is probably going to be minimal, uh, at least for a few years. And then you start managing your 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 crop from there. Now, what? So, um, just to go back to what we were doing in the project, uh, what is it that we're looking at? Uh, the first component was one to uh, avoid this winter damage, right? How can we make these trees go faster or go establish faster in 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 the in the field? So, what we're doing is we uh, used a a uh, passive greenhouse, passive meaning that doesn't get heat on all the time. It's just a tunnel, uh, wire and two layers of plastic, uh, wires, uh, tubing and two layers of plastic. And what we do is if it get, uh, in the winter, right around end of November, we bring our olives in, in pots, and some of them plant, get planted directly in the field, and some of them were kept uh, into the structure. And if by some reason it gets below 25 or 26 degrees, we put a couple of space heaters, propane space heaters, and we turn them on so that the temperature goes up inside that structure, okay? So we actually did in the past three years, turn the heaters on maybe three times. So we didn't really have to use them. And then we planted them in the field, and then we planted them at, at those that have been in the greenhouse overwintering in that little greenhouse uh, for two years because they gained 
uh, girth in the trunk and then gain height and size uh, to see if actually they made a difference. And unfortunately, we didn't get a cold winter to really compare it, but all of our treatments did pretty well. What we did find is that uh, some cultivars are more prone to having more issues here in Oregon versus other cultivars that just grew fantastic. So that's one of the things that we uh, are will be presenting in, in the papers that we're publishing. And also um, the other component was evaluating multiple cultivars of my colleague, Neil Bell. He is looking at a hundred, around a hundred different varieties and cultivars and selections that he has, that he's planting uh, in a collection and he will be evaluating those still for many years to come. And then lastly, Heather Stoben, our colleague specializes in propagation. And she was also looking at doing your own cuttings from your prunings or from your trims that you do in the field to propagate them at your own farm so that you don't have to buy trees from California. And if there's a tree that you uh, particularly like and has done really well, you will be propagating and replicating that tree at your own farm. So are you looking at the impact of climate change on how olive production will, will change in Oregon? Yes. So looking at climate change is interesting because that would requ that require a multi-team as a matter of fact OSU is doing that type of research for other crops that are more of economic importance but no at our uh our, our size and the size of the industry it would be very challenging for us that, that we're talking about a million dollar product project when you do that and our our small grant uh just covered the basics of the production that we have that we were looking at what it's important there is that uh, we've been tracking temperatures at, at multiple grower sites and correlating that with um, the damage that they've gotten in the past four years. Now, unfortunately, again, it didn't get cold, so we saw very little damage at a few sites, but that's about it. I talked to a couple of uh, OSU climatologists and, and people that do research in climate change, and our summers are definitely getting warmer and drier. Um, that's something that, in general, there's a little bit more consensus about. So that would be beneficial for all of I mean, look at that right now. It's very dry and it's April. And we are probably starting even, uh, olives usually are delayed from California in anything to, from a month and a half to two months, lagging behind because of our shorter growing season. So you will see that that season will expand and we probably can have uh, production earlier. Something that I want to mention is pollination. If it gets drier, if it doesn't rain, our, our why Oregon wasn't very hospitable to olives was also because of pollination. When pollen gets released and you have a rain, your flowers can't get pollinated very well. So your fruit set goes down. Your yield goes down subsequently. So what would happen if uh, your summer and springs get drier, you would probably increase pollination that would be beneficial to the yield long term. Now, again, all of this is a speculation, right? I'm, I can't, I don't have the answer. But now this is the really tricky part. I've talked to a few people that do climate research and they've told us, well, yeah, our summers are going to get longer and our, our uh, it's going to be drier, but our, 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 our winter is going to get warmer. That's not necessarily the case. We might see winters that are even harsher 
than what we've seen in the past. So if you think about what's happened in Texas, if you think about what's happened in even the Midwest and the North, uh, Northeast, where you've had these polar vortexes that have formed and made damage in, in piping in houses, you know, if you think that you will get one of these here in Oregon, it would completely devastate crops for olives. So, and I'm not talking about losing your crop for the year. I'm talking about pushing you back four or five years because your trees died. I hear that uh, Texas got hit really hard. Texas is probably the fourth or fifth production region in the United States. And um, it got hit pretty hard this past year. Texas. I mean, Oregon, with the past four years, have been pretty warm. But I, inevitably, we're going to get a harsh winter. I don't know when. Um, and, and that will be the challenge for us to for, for people to look at in the future. Thank you so much for talking about olives um, and climate change and all your research. If people wanted to kind of nerd out uh, more about olives, where could they find out more information about the Olea project? So you can find our a little bit about our Olea project in the website uh, from OSU uh, for the small farms. Um, we're, we have a little page there. We also have an Instagram account at Oregon Olives where we do a lot of uh, uh, updates. We have a olive uh, or the first Oregon Olive School. Unfortunately, we is one of the first in-person events after COVID that we did. We opened uh, 40 spots for people to come and it filled out in 30 minutes. So <laughs> unfortunately, we can't hold most people there, but we're going to do a live stream on Instagram. And then um, I also a quick announcement. Um, I have been hired by the University of California at Davis. I will be the new direct executive director of the Olive Center. Awesome. Well, congratulations. That sounds like a huge move. We'll miss you. Thank you so much for joining us on the food show today, Javier. Great, Emily. Thank you so much. I guess my dream of plentiful Oregon olive oil might not come true after all. If you want to learn more about olives from Javier, check out the Oregon Olive School live on Instagram tomorrow. Go to at Oregon Olives and make sure to follow at PDX Food Show while you're there. Next up, we'll get some tips on cheese and cheese pairings and hear about community supported bread. Speaking of community support and dough, if you have a little money to spare, please consider making a donation to KBOO. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. I'm joined today by Matt Kedzie and Zena Wayless of Starter Bread, a whole grain bread baking company that delivers bread to your door or has it also available for pickup. They do a subscription bread service based in North Portland and I'm so excited to talk about grains and bread with them. Welcome Matt and Zaina. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. Tell us about Starter Bread. How did you start it? What is it? Tell us everything about it. Uh, yeah, it's it started about three years ago um, when I was a pizza maker and you know, we got really nerdy about cheese and vegetables and pizza toppings and um, realized that flour was something we were taking for granted. Um, when a friend gave me some freshly milled grain um, and 
I just like noticed a big difference in the quality of it. And it just opened the door to learning about wheat um, and eventually pulled me out of pizza and just into bread all the time. Although I still try to eat pizza once a week. Um. <laughs> this is a good practice. <laughs> it started just as me being curious and having a small group of subscribers. Um, the first month, I think, had 12 or so. And at that point, I wanted to learn about rye. So I um, just baked rye breads. And it, they're actually very challenging, and it's totally different than wheat. Um, but I found people that were interested in that um, and became a better baker in the process. And they were kind of willing to hold my hand through that. Um, and I think the bread has gotten a lot better over the three years as we've learned more. But I, it feels really like that's the sort of community part is there are people who still get our bread from that time that have watched our product evolve and seen like us change a little bit and learn a little bit more about grains. And we're just constantly trying to share history and facts about grains that we find and researching and talking to other people in the field and other bakers um, and noodle makers. And I've got a person who I can send questions to at OSU and he's a serial chemistry guy. So he gives me stuff that I'm like, whoa, like, I'm not a scientist, but this is this is interesting. I don't quite know how to take all of the information that we get, but we see our job as bakers to find the like to sift it a little bit and find the way to make it the most digestible and approachable so that other folks are excited about bread. You got two bread puns into that <laughs> statement. Simple, <laughs> digestible. I love it. Yeah. Um, Zaina, how about you? How did you come to bread as your passion? I came to bread uh, when I was at Sea Star Bakery, um, and I'd be baking the bread there actually from a similar community-supported bread model. And I, I've always kind of been a baker at home and kind of fell in love with whole grain bread then in a similar kind of like extra long fermented, it's really tasty kind of way. And then um, when the pandemic hit, it made sense for us to offer more bread to people um, since we could deliver and we already had the system set up to be baking a bunch of bread. And at that time I had lost my job. And so I joined in and was like, okay, let's, offer delivery to Northeast, like see how many people we can get bread to. How does it work? So people sign up and then what happens? Yeah, we offer subscriptions um, similar to a vegetable subscription where you pay ahead of time and then you get weekly bread. Folks can sign up for a month or a season. Then we, depending on where you live, that determines what, what day you get bread. And it's always baker's choice and that's worked so far. So we just uh, rotate through a cast of different grains and loaves that we've developed and um, send a little email with each one to, to let people know about what they're eating. So in community supported agriculture model, the farmer is getting 
a big chunk of money at the beginning of the season when they need it to purchase the inputs and to sustain them um, and getting everything going before they actually have a harvest. So how is the subscription program similar to that? What does having that money up front allow you to do? Well, it allows us to pay the farmer and the miller for the grain up front when we know how many how many loaves of bread we're going to need to make. And so we order the right amount so it's always as fresh as possible. And then we don't end up having extra loaves that are going stale that we have to throw out or constantly turn into new product. Um, so it, it makes everything a lot more streamlined and more direct. And I also think it is part of, it's one thing to go to a, like a new hot place that sounds amazing one time or once a year, but to like regularly have a connection with a business or a maker of a product is like profound. And we like we've shopped at grocery stores, we've gotten we've gone to farmers markets and now we kind of grow a little bit of food and supplement that with the with the CSA that we share with the neighbor. And it's just nice to have that connection to people that are doing agricultural work, which is food work. And the amount of transparency too that happens with a CSA or CS bread. Um, CSB. <laughs> CSB. Uh, yeah, just being able to talk about where each of these grains came from or what has happened that week that like when the snow happens or when there's a power outage, like we're all part of these realities that affect our food systems. It's exciting. Let's talk a little bit about grains, because I know you are all excited about grains. Do you have a favorite grain you want to talk about? Grain story, a favorite <laughs> grower or a miller or like a favorite coarseness? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so much available here, not only in the biodiversity of grains and things like cereals that aren't necessarily grains like, like buckwheat. There's, there's so much stuff here to use. So we, we're lucky to live in a really amazing climate for it with people doing this work. And there's also really good mills. Um, we're fortunate to have Camas Country Mill and Cairn Spring Mills, as well as a few smaller ones that are uh, making flour the old fashioned way, but at an incredible quality that's nice to bake with. Bakers around the country are trying to get Oregon flour because it's very nice to use. Um, but we also play this game called uh, Desert Island Baking. <laughs> Is it Desert Island? Oh. Desert Island Grains, where you just have oh. to pick three if you were going to bake everything you ever wanted to, or even like make anything you want to, right? Like noodles as well. What, what grains would you have to pick? And we always end up picking something different every day. Um, <laughs> but I... I, I always pick Durham because Xena Cakes, which is a muffin that you can get at Sea Star Bakery. And <laughs> it's my favorite, um, clearly. It's a turmeric and, um, and anise. And the Durham flour just has like a brilliant chewiness to it. It's the same as uh, semolina wheat, which is in pasta. And that's one of my favorites. I really like, there's an extension program of WSU in Washington that does some wheat breeding and they have newer varieties of land race wheats, which rather than being a clone. So if I'm a wheat, I'm named Matthew. You have a clone of Matt or Matthew Kedzie. There's a clone of, there's a field of Matthew Kedzies and uh, pests or climate can impact us all. Similarly with these land race wheats, it's maybe more like 
you take all of the Matthews that live in the Pacific Northwest and put them in a field. And we're each going to have different abilities to fight these things. And it, it's just like resistance and more uh, guarantee for farmers in the region to have tools to fight some of the, the challenges that we're facing. That's a, a field that, uh, that we're really interested in is just like being connected to the research that's going on so that we can try and help create a demand for those products. So the land raised, uh, is it like you get a variety of seeds that you're planting instead of monocropping in one yeah. area? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the one that's had the most success in our region is named after the Skagit Valley. It's called Skagit 1109. And it's a winter, a hard winter wheat. So it doesn't have, it's not as strong as some of the like red wheats that are very common, which are usually planted in the spring. Um, but it has a great flavor and it's super fun to work with. And um, it can be grown organically. And if, if there are people that are doing this work being like, this is the stuff that is good for the farmer, then we gravitate towards that. Have you all done any milling yourselves? Yeah, we have a little tabletop mill that we use um, for some of the bread, depending on what the what it is that week. It's a nice tool because you can adjust how coarse you want the flour. So it, as you get nerdy about like textures, it, it adds to what you can do. We crack a lot of grain after toasting it, which just smells like fresh cereal. And it's so good. we'll like soak it or cook it um, and then add that to bread. That's a fun way to get in uh, more whole grains into a loaf without kind of sacrificing the, the hydration and the softness of the bread. A lot of whole grain bread can be really dense and a little bit more confusing how to use. And so we've really appreciated um, some high extraction flours that are available from Camus that kind of allow us to balance using that flour and then porridges and other techniques to get more whole grains into a bread, but that's still a softer loaf. Yeah. So what we're finding is that like part of the advantage of the, the great mills we have here is the, the high extraction flours, which are not a hundred percent whole grain, but they're also not white flour. So um, just understanding that there's this whole world of gray, in between white and whole wheat and that opens up the door to infinite things you can create. It's been really fun to just dive in deeply, see where the grain takes us. I love that. Where are you sourcing your recipes for the loaves you're making? That is a great great question. question. We have a spreadsheet that we've just been altering forever. (laughs) I I think like it's a lot of work in progress is Although we do have regular things that we come back to. Yeah, I feel like we kind of have um, regular regular combinations that will alter, dip, alter the hydration of if it's a different grain or if it's spring season and we know we want to put more sprouted berries in there. Yeah, I would say like we, for a long time we were making bread, like we would try to do a barley bread and a rye bread and a durum bread. And we still do that to some extent. Um, but now we're trying to also be open to doing combinations so that it's not just necessarily about like this one grain because they're all very delicious and they can complement each other. And there's also so many different barley breads you can make exactly. and so many different rye <laughs> breads you can make. 
like so we're more like uh we make a bunch of different yeah we have like four barley recipes that we <laughs> i want to play a game that's the opposite of desert island grain and it's you can have any grain you want all the time and you get to do whatever you want with your future like what is what does starter bread look like moving ahead you're you're pretty small right now is the intention to stay a, a small subscription program or is there uh yeah i mean we've we've just wanted to, to like we come from working in restaurants and doing all sorts of things we have other interests besides bread Zena likes to garden and dance and i like to paint sometimes it's nice to have work-life balance and really easy to lose track of that when you run a business so we are hoping to just keep doing what we're doing more or less we're constantly asking the question of like what what is just enough and what is sustainable because those are like you can always dig deeper like i think a large part of us caring about community supported systems and also whole grains and nutrition and the local agriculture is like how can we always be more sustainable, can we? And I don't know where we're gonna go, but it's probably gonna keep chasing those questions. It's really refreshing to hear, you know, especially right now, I guess it kind of always, it's really refreshing to hear somebody say, we're thinking about how we can do just enough and not how we can endlessly grow. So thank you so much for that. That's lovely. So we just have a couple minutes left and I want to make sure that our listeners know how they can find out more about Starter Bread we have a website, which we use as our main form of a storefront because we don't have a storefront. So it's just starterbread.com. And we take subscriptions at the beginning of every month. And then every three months, there's a new season. But um, if you miss signups, you can always try again the next month because it's uh, a monthly basis, the thing. Thanks so much for, for having us. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks for joining us on The Food Show. Let's have you introduce yourself to everybody. All right. Hi. Yeah, my name is Nikki Panos. I am a decade-long cheesemonger. Um, I got into the cheese world by accident. Uh, when I was living in North Carolina, I had my first career as a zookeeper, and I had weird weekends. So I wanted a hobby job, and I saw an opening for a cheese shop, and that's where I kind of fell down the rabbit hole of cheese. I got really passionate about education and pairings and making cheese accessible to people, highlighting the cheese makers, the agriculture, and the animals um, in the areas I lived in from North Carolina to California, now here in Oregon. So currently I work at Cowbell Creamery, and I also have kind of a pet project called the Tipsy Monger, where I post photos on Instagram and I lead cheese and cider, cheese and beer, cheese and whiskey pairing classes, um, anything from corporate events to also maybe a bridal shower. Uh, often I will pair up with a, a cidery or a creamery to showcase those different products through the classes. I'm super excited to talk about cheese with you. I, I love cheese. Um, <laughs> and I'm always looking for, uh, I guess, ideas about 
cheese because I, I don't really know much about it at all, really at all. It's just kind of this magical thing that exists in my life. <laughs> so Nikki, tell us a couple of the creameries and cheeses that you're particularly excited about right now. Yeah, so cheese is just aged milk. It's pretty simple. Um, some people would say gone bad. It's a lot of living organisms. There's a lot of science involved in cheese. So I get really excited about that part. And cheesemongers love to geek out about the science of cheese. But we also really love to geek out about what is exciting in the cheese world, either across the pond, over in Europe. Um, but I especially like talking about local cheeses. I think it's important to um, really showcase what's in your area. There is um, there is terroir everywhere and the American landscape is kind of new. We're still in our infancy compared to our European brethren, but we are making some really cool experimental things. So a lot of cheeses over like in Europe have these different designations and they have to be made a certain way all the time to be called what they are and made in a certain place. But we don't have those stipulations here in America, so we can kind of get wild and funky with things in a different way. And the Pacific Northwest is a really beautiful place for that. We actually had a creamery called Rogue River. Um, they do beautiful blue cheeses. And I was really jazzed uh, in the 2019 and the 2020 year, they won best cheese in the world for their Rogue River wow. blue. Yeah, it's really exciting. And they only make a certain amount of it during a certain time of year in September when the cows are eating the best grasses. And it's a really beautiful cheese. It's really unctuous. It is a uh, natural rinded cheese. It's um, wrapped in organic biodynamic Syrah grape leaves, and then it's soaked in pear brandy. And <laughs> it's Sounds really amazing. cool. Yeah, it's a very, very intense experience. It's very complex, um, but the paste is like fudge. So that's one that I always love to talk about because people get really jazzed about it. Another cheese I really enjoy um, is Maya from Briar Rose Creamery. The owner is Sarah Marcus, and she makes these beautiful handmade cheeses. The one that I like a lot is called Maya. It's a younger age cheese. It's a double cream, so it kind of has a brie look to it. So it has these really subtle, funky, earthy notes, um, but it kind of just tastes like complex butter. That one, yeah, that one's really great. It sounds delicious. So I think that your pairings work is really fascinating. This this show is uh, a little bit of a pairing in my head because I talked to bread maker and people who are working on growing olives in Oregon and to you about cheese, which are like, it's a great combination. And so I think I'm a little bit primed to think about uh, delicious combinations with cheese. Talk a little bit about your pairing in the beverage world and some pairings that you like. There is a laundry list, but mm -hmm. I will try to keep it short and concise. Um, as far as trying to keep it local, the there are some really beautiful things up here. And when you think about cheese and beverage pairings, I like to focus on things that are accessible to folks, things that people can get excited about that they may not have otherwise thought about and offering up something that people can be guided through. I like to do playful pairings, um, but I really also like to encourage people to try things on their own. So when I do, for, say, for example, a pairing class, 
I will have like four cheeses and four ciders. And I encourage folks, and this is for somebody if they just wanna do this at home by themselves too. I encourage folks to not eat all or drink all of anything. I know it's really hard to keep <laughs> your fingers out and to not sip the really yummy drink, but always keep a little bit of everything so you can try all the different combinations and think on your own. So it's all about just being thoughtful with your food. I always talk about in my classes how I am a food monster and I'll throw food in my face really fast, but learning to think about what you're enjoying and sitting back really helps you understand and appreciate what you're, what you're enjoying. So as far as local ones that I'm into right now, I love art and science. Uh, they are a, um, a wild fermented cider company. Um, Kim is amazing. I don't know if you've ever talked to her on the show, but she is a firecracker and she makes some really, really beautiful ciders. And um, I think the Symbiosis is my favorite. They do a really beautiful cider and that one goes really well with almost any cheese, honestly. It's hard to, to not do well with that, but those really, her ciders specifically lend themselves to these washed rind ciders that can be a little funky. They can have a lot of fruit notes in them, which is really complimentary to cider. Um, and so I would encourage anyone to go out and get either a local one called Sawtooth from Cascadia Creamery. That's a washed rind, uh, fudgy, fruity, yeasty, peaty cheese that just really blends well with those kind of funkier ciders. And then another one that I would recommend to folks is Bauman's Clyde's Dry. So if you want to get more of that English style cider that has a little bit of that tannin going on, that one goes really well with uh, cheddars. So cheddars that are either also kind of earthy and have a natural rind or that are a little younger and kind of have a sweeter edge to them actually cuts through those tannins. So think Tillamook Reserve. That's actually something you can find easily at something like New Seasons. and is just a really fun thing to enjoy and explore. And then maybe trying both of those with each other, each of the other combinations, that could be really fun. That sounds delicious. I love that advice of, I always definitely wanna taste everything all at once. Yes. <laughs> I love it to like pace yourself, make sure to mix and match and try things, figure out what works with your palate. Thinking about tastings, thinking about cheese, for me, it's like a, a luxury item, but I know that you do a lot of work to try to make cheese more accessible and to promote cheese as like an important aspect of our food system. So tell us a little bit about that perspective. Yeah, so a lot of people get intimidated by either the price point or asking questions about cheese, but cheesemongers are there to uh, get you excited about something that we're excited about. And there is often a gap when you see something that says $40 a pound, you might bulk at that, but you're only getting a little bit of cheese, a little bit of a really good cheese goes a really long way. So you're not gonna get a pound of cheese, you're gonna get a quarter pound of cheese. And mongers are usually really excited to just get you to go home with any amount of cheese. So if they'll cut you an eighth of a pound of a piece of cheese just to get you to try it, that's success for us. And it's an investment for sure. So when I was learning about cheese, it was a way for me to restructure where I was investing in my food and understanding where my food comes from. Makers work really hard. The dairy, you know, works really hard. The maker themselves, 
employing great people. There's a lot of great cheese um, creameries out there who are B Corps now. So they invest in their employees as well. So I, when I buy cheese, I'm not thinking as much about the price as what I'm investing in. So I might skimp on something else in my grocery shopping list so that I can support my maker and the agriculture in which it comes from. And I think it's just about people understanding and thinking things through when they're in the grocery store or at a cheese shop. I highly encourage folks to go to a specialty cheese shop like Cowbell where I work because we know what we're talking about. We're gonna get you guys excited and we're gonna find something you love. If you think you don't love blue cheese, I'll find a blue cheese you love. And pro tip, it's Cheriboga. So if you ever come into Cowbell and talk to me, get Cheriboga if you think you don't like blue cheese. <laughs> what makes that blue cheese so special? The, that blue cheese? So it's a single maker and um, he's in Germany and his cheese just tastes like custard. So even though it has that blue veining, it's not really funky and aggressive. It's delicate and it's just like eating a bowl of custard. So anyone who says they don't love blue cheese, try that and I will guarantee you will change your mind. And I just think reiterating coming in and talking to mongers, we're all very eccentric people who want to get you guys excited. And Cowbell is a really good local source if you're here in Portland. It is um, inner Southeast. We're in kind of an industrial area. So generally we only get people that are seeking us out and who want to nerd out on cheese with us. We are a distributor and a wholesaler and we have over 200 cheeses in our in our warehouse at a time that goes to restaurants and grocers and things like that. But we also have this really pretty retail side, which we have about 60 of our cheeses up at the retail end. And it's only the things that we're most excited about. So if I say to my um, owner, Greg, hey, Greg, I'm really excited about this red Casanova right now. He might bring it up from the warehouse and I can sell it to people in smaller chunks and get them excited about what we're excited about. Very cool. So if people wanted to learn more about cheese and pairings from you, um, they could go to, to Cowbell, but is there any other way they could get in touch? Yeah, so I'm active somewhat. I'm getting more active again, but I'm on Instagram, tipsymonger. You can shoot me a message. I respond if you want to talk about doing anything directly with me or just any ideas that are mulling around in your mind. Feel free. I'm open. I'm happy to talk to anyone. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nikki. Thank you, Emily. I really appreciate your time. It was fun to be here. Thanks for tuning into The Food Show. If you want to listen again, find us at kboo.fm slash foodshow or wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things I love about doing this show is connecting with so many amazing people working with food. From growing to baking to selling, all the guests you heard on the show today are contributing to our vibrant local food system. I want to ask you to contribute too. There are so many ways to show your support, but one really simple way is to make a donation to KBOO and keep your community-supported radio thriving. Become a member today at kboo.fm give. Thanks for listening.